For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Are you in for a treat this week? Over the years of doing this show, there have been certain people I've really wanted to interview, and our guest is one of those. I think I first made this request back in 2018. We actually did have an appointment booked for an in-person interview, but it got moved, and then he was too busy, and then there was COVID, and then no travel, and I'd almost given up. But I'm so glad I didn't, because Tim Jackson is one of those thought leaders that I just make this show for. I really, really wanted to talk to Tim. He is an ecological economist and author. His latest book is called Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, and you must read it. It's a very persuasive argument for a complete rethink of how we define success and why we need a new kind of economy, one that prioritises relationship and meaning over profits and power. Now, Tim sees this book as both a manifesto for system change and an invitation to rekindle, he says, a deeper conversation about the nature of the human condition. Don't you just love it? I'm so up for accepting this invite. How about you? Now, Tim and I discuss what that might look like practically. I mean, it sounds good in theory, but what would we do to create a post-growth future? But also so many things like from, I don't know, how advertising fuels overconsumption we talk about whether or not green growth is kind of a con or just not right, a bit greenwashy. We talk about the future of work, what a single universal basic income could do for us, and even a bit of fashion by way of an 18th century philosopher's shirt. Love it. Okay, now remember how last week I asked you for your help in reaching new listeners? Well, thank you to everyone who recommended the show to two friends. I love you. <laughs> Please, can more of you do it? It really makes a difference because I'm not one of those shows with big teams and marketing budgets or, you know, advertising fueling overconsumption. I don't have radio deals and all the rest of that stuff. I'm literally doing this on my own. And also, I've really stuck to my guns in only interviewing the most interesting guests and not just selling out and chasing famous people who might get me more attention. So if you value that, please do take a moment to help me promote my work. Next week, I'll be shouting out to some of you who rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. If you post about it on social media, make sure you tag me so I know and can give you a shout out too. But today, I just wanted to say hello to my dear dad, my stepdad, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. I just sent him Tim's book and I know that he's going to be eager to hear this interview. Enjoy, Andrew. All right, we're ready to sit down with the brilliant Tim Jackson. Let's go. I might just ask you to tell us, Tim, what is an ecological economist? <laughs> uh, it's an economist who cares about the planet, basically. It's a field of economics that sort of takes the question of ecology and the, the size of the economy in relation to the planet seriously. It started, it was about 30-something years ago, 32 years ago or so, I suppose. The field opened up and it was led by a man called Herman Daly, who was one of the the forerunners of this work around economic growth and the limits of economic growth. All right, we're going to get into that. But let's begin, if we may, Tim, with a, a fashion 
question. It's a story that I read in your latest book, Post Growth Life After Capitalism, which I've just finished. Brilliant, by the way. Thank you. It's a, a reference to the Scottish philosopher and economist Adam Smith. I studied politics, Tim, and this is taking me back to my um, lost education. But he was writing in the 1700s, sometimes referred to as the father of capitalism. But he's thinking about a new linen shirt, and I've written it here. The want of which, he writes, would be supposed to denote that disgraceful degree of poverty which it is presumed nobody can well fall into without extreme bad conduct. So... It's like the not getting of the shirt meant that you couldn't afford it, so you had to be a bad person. Exactly. It's desire and shame. There's something wrong with you if you haven't got the latest fashion. I mean, in a way, that is what the fashion industry kind of trades on, isn't it? It's what does your shirt say about you? What does your car say about you? What does your toilet roll say about you? It's, you know, if you haven't got the right stuff, then there must be, you must be bad somehow. And that's, I mean, it's a very powerful human emotion. I think that's the point. To some extent, it's the point that Smith was making that, you know, that shame is a very powerful emotion for people's actions, motivation for people's actions. And actually, Amartya Sen, another economist called Amartya Sen, picked it up a little bit later on and, and sort of argued in a sense that this emotion of shame was the engine of consumerism and consumption because it keeps us buying all the new stuff that somebody somewhere says we need if we are not shameful individuals. Well, that's basically fashion advertising in a nutshell. And that's the engine of reports on trends, of advertising in malls to make you buy luxury clothes you can't afford. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say so. I mean, I think when I came across that sort of work and what I was thinking about really was what is consumerism? What is it that drives us to consume? And and the, you know the obvious kind of question is well you you need clothes because it's cold otherwise or you know you've got to protect yourself from the elements somehow and that's what we do when we're buying clothes and very quickly you find that it's just way too simplistic and that there's very much more complex things going on and and it's that complex thing that I think is worth exploring a little bit you know not just taking for granted and saying oh that's a bad thing or that's a good thing or that's how it works or we want more of that so we can sell more clothes but actually sort of understanding it in the context of human motivations and saying what is it that we're doing in that you know what is it that we're trying to say through our choice of these very symbolic material goods that that are supposed to give us or take away shame from us. I wrote this quote down from your book where you said, consumer products must promise paradise, but they must systematically fail to deliver it. Yeah. I mean, that to me is where the dysfunctionality comes in, because I don't think it's wrong that we feel shame as human beings. I don't think it's wrong that we want to impress other people because we are social animals. I don't think it's wrong that we want to look good. I think what's gone wrong is that somehow we've taken those motivations and we slotted them into a system which continually has to leave us unsatisfied uh -huh. because it wants to sell us something more. So you think you're buying paradise, but actually you're not. You've got a ticket to hell. But it's funny because we do all know this if we pause to examine it. I mean, it doesn't just have to be about advertising fashion, but just advertising consumer products in general. We know that it's a fantasy and that there are armies of marketers employed to do that. And yet we just go along with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, there was a book that I came across when I was doing some of this research called The Science of Desire. <laughs> Good title. It's brilliant, isn't it? And it was written by a man called Ernest Dichter. 
And he was basically, you know, building the foundations for advertising at the time. And he was saying that you have to approach this scientifically, guys. You have to understand what it is that people want and you have to appeal to that. And that will allow you to create your market, which will allow you to sell your goods and you'll become very successful. But at the beginning of the book, and it's a really interesting passage, he has this passage where he describes refugees. And you might think, what on earth is this passage doing here? And he describes this kind of chain of people just walking with their heads down along a muddy road. And it's something, I can't remember exactly how the passage goes, but it's something like, you know, had desperate hands clutching the last of their possessions without which they would be truly lost. And that idea that actually, you know, this is people who have lost everything practically, but they've managed to bring a few things with them and they're clinging to these things, these material things, even though they're not food and they're not water and they're not even protection from the elements. They are symbolic signifiers of the continuation of the self, of our identity. And that's a really powerful underlying human motivation but that's the bit of materialism that i respond to and love because i think that fashion can be a harbor of stories and memories and that that's the good side and there's always two sides to this yeah yeah and that's what i i guess what i kind of wanted to do i wanted to because i think if we can identify what the good side is then we've got a basis to build something from and we've got that sense of being able to say well yeah it's dysfunctional this form but its dysfunctionality rests on this very pure thing, which is quintessentially human. And we need to understand that. Because it's the extent to which we have decided, and we'll get onto that, that there are no limits to our consumption and that materialism is defining everything we do. But actually, there is a sort of fundamental, like you say, an urge to have things it's just that we've gotten so out of balance balance is a word that you bring up again and again in your work yeah balance is kind of important to me i mean it comes it's got a very long lineage you can go back to aristotle and aristotle was talking about balance you know between having too much and having too little the golden mean is what he called it and this idea that actually the good life is as much about balance as it is about the accumulation of more is kind of totally at odds with consumerism you know, the mantra of more just carries us away with it. And we think that's what prosperity is about. We think that's what the good life is about. We think that's what well-being is about, having more and more. But of course, it isn't true. It's never true. And it's never been true. And I think in a way, I mean, one of the things that brought it home to me is I was sitting down writing this in the early stages of the pandemic, when actually the economy, the economy of having more had been brought to a juddering halt, because what we needed to protect was health. And health is exactly about balance. You know, it is about the balance between deficiency and excess, even something kind of basic like food. Yes, there are people who are starving and malnourished, but there's also more people now today dying from diseases of overconsumption than, than of malnutrition. I mean, the whole thing, if you think about Extinction Rebellion, signage, no fashion on a dead planet or no jobs on a dead planet, and you can extend that thinking to the personal or bring it back to the personal, if you don't have your health, what the hell do you need a new Prada dress for? But yeah. can we come back to the context of the pandemic? Because you write, so this book sort of ends and begins with the change that happened in 2020 and is still happening, right? But there's this sense of hope and possibility that now we can change. And I wanted to ask you about that. Have you come across, I don't know how much you follow fashion, but the business of fashion puts out a thing called the state of fashion. I'm a dedicated follower of fashion. <laughs> like the kinks. Oh, you you got it. Uh, yeah, no. That's... I do know the kinks. 
<laughs> I'm very impressed, though, that you recognise the king. So that's a good start. Um, but if you are a dedicated follower of fashion, have you seen this thing that comes out, Business of Fashion and McKinsey? They put it out every year. It's called The State of Fashion. Yeah, I know of it. The yeah. year. Well, this one, here's a line from the intro. I thought you might like it or hate it. In the US, the release of pent-up demand created spikes of so-called revenge buying. That's what happened last year. But then the crux of this thing is that McKinsey projects that 2021 global fashion sales will surpass 2019 levels. And then 2022, they'll surpass them again, predicted to get to 108% of 2019 levels. So we're not slowing down. We're still hurtling forwards. What, yeah. what do you yeah, think? I, mean, I do think, I'm not really sure what revenge buying is, but I definitely we know a lot about comfort buying, for example. Oh, it's like... It's like I'm having a tantrum because I hated having COVID spoil my life. So now I'm going to go out and shop. Right. So it's some a kind of twist on sort of comfort buying in a way. It's yeah. No, I get that, and I do get that. I mean, I get that sort of sense of, for goodness' sake, this has gone long, long enough, and I need some comfort. I need something that tells me that life goes on, that hope is possible, that there's a bright, shiny future for me and for my kids, and sometimes just that I just want. You know, I want to feel good. I want that feel good factor. And and that is something that fashion can bring. And it's something, obviously, that consumption can bring. Just having, you know, that act of buying something that's new that replaces something that was falling apart is deeply symbolic to us because it suggests hope, suggests promise in the future. And so, you know, one of the tragedies, in a sense, is that that system, which is sold on the basis of the building of hope, is actually kind of in the long run undermining it because that expansion's totally unsustainable so it, it seems to me like our task if you like our challenge our mission if we are prepared to accept it is <laughs> is to take the good stuff you know to take what it is to be human and what that hope really means and not to give it away as a system for maximizing profit but to situate it in the sense of where does that good stuff sit in a proper balance between material desires and our social needs where does it sit in the balance between having too little and having too much where does it sit in the balance between our physical health and our mental health where does it sit in the balance between our you know our desire for happiness and our acknowledgement of the tragedies of life because all of that is part of what it is to be human and it's almost as though you know fashion comes along and because it's an industry and because it's a capitalist industry and because it's driven by profit, it's forever trying to sell you the kind of happy corner of life where everything's going to be fine and you can just go on having more and more of it. But did you think that or do you potentially still think that the inverted commas unprecedented times will cause a change in our cultural view on this? Oh, yeah. I mean, not necessarily instantly overnight and not necessarily specifically on this in this way, but I have no doubt that this, what we're living through, is a part of a cultural change that we cannot even yet guess where it's going. And I definitely think it has that opportunity for us to question some of this stuff and to question, you know, the things that matter to us. And, you know, whether and how fast we go back to something which looks like anything recognizable as normal, I just feel as though what we've lived through is unprecedented in our lifetimes and our parents' lifetimes almost. And so it, it is going to be something that changes society and we don't yet know how. 
Before I get off that report, I did want to also tell you that it talks about the key drivers of, and it uses the word growth because it is a business report. So the big opportunities for growth, and one of them is sustainability. And that always makes me think, but isn't that like not in the spirit of it? I know. I'm really hoping that Don't Look Up, which is the Netflix film starring Jennifer Lawrence and Leonardo DiCaprio really sets that to rest because I, what the film does is it kind of parodies that. You know, the comet's coming towards Earth and we're all pretending it isn't coming towards Earth. And instead of sort of figuring out what we ought to do and how we ought to respond to it, we try and look for the business opportunity in it. And, and of course, it's the ultimate parody because it's absolutely what's happening in relation to climate change. You know, we haven't solved climate change through any of the government initiatives or any of the policies or any of the, you know, people getting out on the streets. So our last best chance to keep 1.5 alive is to sell it as a business opportunity. And it's completely nuts, of course. I was thinking of questions specific to the book and I was making notes like, okay, what do I want to know about this? Is this bullshit? And it was, so I kept thinking of You mean is my book bullshit? Or, or? No, 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 no. Your book made me want to ask you, is insert thing here oh, bullshit? Oh, okay. And one of them was, one of them was the green economy or green growth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, green growth has definitely been sold as an idea to save us. And it's a very attractive idea and it's, you know, because it doesn't rock the boat. And actually, many incarnations of green growth suggest you'll make the claim that green growth is even better than brown growth, dirty growth, bad growth. And so, you know, if we become a little bit greener, then that will actually be better for profit. It'll give us more success. It'll give us more in the long run. And of course, it will give us more in the long run, but not quite in the way that green growth suggests, because green growth is like, it's a very, you know, have your cake and eat it philosophy. It's basically you don't have to tinker with the system too much. Uh, we can keep growth intact. We can keep consumerism. We can keep fashion. We can keep advertising. We can keep all that stuff. We'll just green it and then everything will be okay. And what it fundamentally does is just misunderstand the nature of the problem most of the time. I think it, it kind of, you know, it's wandering around lost in its own dogma, unable to take that moment to pause and reflect on the underlying drivers of what we're lost in and that i think is it's a fundamental failure it's a failure of policy it's a failure of research and intellect and academic work and it's a failure of the business community to some extent to really open itself to question and ask what's possible in a in a finite world and what's possible in terms of the existing structures that we lock ourselves into should we talk about limits or can we? I think we have to, don't we? Absolutely. But we don't like to be told there are limits. There is a resistance to being told you must be less, you must have less. There are limits. You know, even in, I was thinking about, I know you don't write about this, but just I was thinking about the sort of self-help movement that's all about you are, get rid of your limiting beliefs and your capacities and capabilities are limitless. But we've got this cultural idea that, we shouldn't have any boundaries, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's deeply culturally ingrained. You know, in the book, I kind of start with this. One of the things I start with is this speech in Davos that Donald Trump gave. I mean, it was quite an extraordinary speech because it was totally soulless in some ways. But when you watch him, he's kind of gazing out to the far horizon. You know, he is the warrior at the frontier of the expanding new empire. 
gazing into this new territory and talking about no frontiers and denigrating anyone who talks about limits as prophets of doom. And uh, I've forgotten the exact phrase, but something like the, the soothsayers of yesterday's mistaken prophets or something like this. You know, it's very kind of very romanticized language of both thinking about the frontier and what's out there and where we're headed and going beyond anything that looked like limits and and then talking about the people who talk about limits themselves as prophets of doom as the doomsayers and i mean that that was an extreme example if you like from a quite extreme man but actually it it does live in us it lives in our kind of cultural psyche our sense that there's no limits for ourselves that we can overcome everything that that it's all just a challenge to be to be addressed, to be systematically fought for, to be struggled for. And there's something, you know, very macho about that struggle and about the ability or the sense that we can always overcome it. And, you know, this it's quite attractive as a proposition because the opposite of it seems to be that you give up. You know, you kind of say, accept, no, I can't do that. And I don't know whether you have kids, but, you know, anyone who has kids would kind of recognise when your kids face something difficult that they haven't done before that is physically challenging or that's in their schools difficult to achieve or whatever, you don't go and tell them to give up. You don't say, you know, go and hide in a hole somewhere. Yeah, don't worry. It's, yeah, you've reached your limit, anyway. mate. Sorry. You've reached your limit. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. It's not good parenting. I don't think it's in the good parenting manual, that one. And so it seems to be that we're, we're kind of positioned between between the sense of giving up going home and not worrying about anything, not achieving anything and, and not going forwards at all. And this frontier mentality, which is all about busting through every limit that exists. And I suppose what I wanted to do in the book and what I think is the more appropriate response is to kind of take the idea of limits as a guide, as you know, the limits are the gateway to the limitless, because some things are limited, but in recognizing where those limits are, we point ourselves towards a world which actually is unlimited, in which ingenuity and inspiration and creativity is possible and the progress of the human spirit exists. And that's a really fundamental element of what I was trying to do in post-growth is to say that if we are courageous enough to recognize that there are limits in some things, then we open up the opportunity for a place where we can move beyond limits and where we can really revitalize our sense of social progress i suppose and think of humanity as as a species that is still evolving in extraordinary ways but of course there are limits i mean anyone who has read about for example planetary boundaries or on the last series of the podcast we talked to some of the activists from Extinction Rebellion about the Club of Rome raising or reporting limits to growth in the early 70s. We know that there's a finite, there's finite space on the earth, if you like. I well, mean, you, you and I might do, but I mean, actually that report, that limits to growth report was condemned really by all and sundry and in particular by economists and, and, and even by, you know, presidents. And it was condemned for suggesting that there are limits. Which, you know, it seems extraordinary because there's something basic about it. The planet is only so big. There's only so many elements of each type and they don't exist in useful ways except in limited amounts. But the, you know, the economic position on that is that if we're clever enough, we can use technology to overcome all of those things. Or bugger off into space like Bezos. Or go into space, yeah. 
No, I mean, I think that's really that's really interesting too. You know, that is but, a rubbish argument, that one, isn't it? I'm sorry. Well, it's an inevitable one in a way, because I think that in a way I take a positive from that argument that Bezos and Musk and Richard Branson and so on are now saying, well, we've got to go into space because the Earth is limited. Because actually for quite a long time, it was not allowed to say the Earth is limited. And now all of a sudden the Earth is limited, so we better go into space and solve our problems. Oh, so you see this as like, aha, uh -huh, now you're coming around to recognising the validity of this argument. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, and these are big, powerful, rich, incredibly influential men. I was going to ask you how you went down at Davos. Were you popular? Well, you know, I, I kept my head down, really, and I kept my powder dry because for the first time in more than three decades of working, I was invited to Davos to talk under the caption, is growth a delusion? And this was not me inviting myself there to talk to anybody. This was Deutsche Bank inviting me to feature in that conversation. Isn't that interesting how coming back to talking about the Club of Rome report, which I have to say I'd never even heard of this, even though I work in this space until Bell Jacobs told me about it on this podcast. But talking about the evolution of that conversation that 30 years or however many years it is, 40 years later, you can be invited by a bank to speak yeah. officially on this topic that was not to be discussed in previous times. It is extraordinary. I mean, the predecessor book to Post Growth is a book called Prosperity Without Growth, and that was published when I was Economics Commissioner on the Sustainable Development Commission. And at the time that I launched that, initially it was a report to the UK government, and it wasn't very popular, I and mean, I can tell you that with, without fear or failing. It was not a popular moment. And in fact, I, I, there was one Friday evening just, after, just before it was launched when I, I received a phone call. I was just walking home thinking everything was tied up, everything was ready, the report was coming out on Monday, it was all going to be good. And I, I received this phone call from someone telling me that number 10 in a certain street in London had gone ballistic because they discovered that this government advisor was putting out this report. And it happened to coincide with the week in which that same UK government had invited the G20 leaders to come to London to talk about, guess what, kick-starting growth in the wake of the financial crisis. So it was, it was one of those moments where you kind of think, this was not a career best in terms of the influence that I want to have on the rich and powerful. But what was striking to me following that was that the people who came round to it fastest actually probably were the financial institutions they were the ones who were kind of looking at what was going on in the financial crisis and saying actually you know growth isn't quite so easy as we thought it was and maybe we do need to think beyond it i wanted to ask you about this perception that talking about post-growth or let's talk about the subtitle of your book life after capitalism is somehow a left position then I found a, a review from 2010 of the Prosperity Without Growth book in The Guardian, and they were talking about this too, like, is it politicised? Can it be removed from politics? Is it a sort of, this is from your book, questioning growth is deemed to be the act of lunatics, idealists and revolutionaries, but question it we must. But are we still mired or bogged down in this idea that you have to be a lefty to talk about this and that it's politicised? Or is it actually yeah, above I, it? Can I mean, we lift it above the political fray? 
interestingly i think it is already it's both below it and above it because there's been a sense in which you can't ask about growth on the left or the right <laughs> and in fact you can't point to the left and say they've been much much better about questioning growth than the right has and also there is a distinctly right driven conservative driven republican driven movement conservation driven movement which actually is prepared to look at that growth question and there's in fact a a magazine in in Germany called Die Kera, which published a special issue recently on post-vaxxedums, post-growth, and which the entire issue from a very right perspective was the questioning of the growth-based model. So that's happening. It isn't, I think, so much a a left-right issue. All right, let's talk about what it might be. And actually, Tim, you're a playwright, not just an ecological economist. You are a storyteller in different forms. To be blunt, my uh, ecological economics has taken the driving seat in relation to my playwriting recently, but it is in my CV, yeah. But I say that because story is something you talk about the importance of, and because you just mentioned Shakespeare and Tennessee Williams when you write, and your books are full of stories about humans that make us connect with them instead of being just about GDP is this and it doesn't measure this and there are its limitations. Stories, one of the ways in which we move this along. Yeah. So can we talk about that? If the current system, which is all about measure success by GDP, is our dominant narrative, what kind of alternative story could we tell and do you want to tell? Yeah, I'm not sure if I think our story has to be more exciting than success is about increases in the GDP. Our story has to the story that we're living on has to be we can always have more. We can always have whatever we want. And if we can't have what we want, then our kids can have what we want and everything is going to be fantastic forever. That's our kind of because oh, no one would buy into the story that was just GDP. No, <laughs> no, it's not interesting enough. Nobody really cares. Nobody even knows what it is. You know, it's just boring economics. And so the story is very much a story of kind of excitement beyond belief at the cornucopia of wonderful, shiny things that we can assimilate and accumulate for ourselves. And I think the story that I kind of want to say is that is that that's great. You know, shiny things are really lovely. I love them too. But actually, the, the world isn't entirely like that. And, and those shiny things don't tell you how much you love your kids. They don't tell you how strong your friendships are. They don't tell you how how skillful you are in, a, in something that you picked up, like being able to play a musical instrument or, or to develop a, a physical feat and to become fit in some way. They don't tell you anything about that because those things are not about shiny material, ever accumulating things. They are about your skills they're about your the application of your human drive to improve at something they're about your relationship to other people and so you know the story that i think we can tell ourselves about a post-growth future is that it is a richer beautiful place because it's full of strong relationships and it's forever about our search for to improve our skills and to create beautiful things and to talk to each other in new ways and to explore our physicality and to go out into the world as physical visceral beings and test ourselves to our own limits because beyond those limits we discover extraordinary states of mind and that's not just an abstract you know wouldn't it be nice if that's actually something that we've been looking at in my in my research group very specifically that psychological state of mind that is a state of you know kind of peak experience of going beyond the everyday and achieving things you never imagined were possible 
But how do we measure that? Because economists always want to measure something. And I'm not going to get into, because we've talked about it in previous episodes of this podcast, and we'll share some links, the fact that after a certain level of income, for example, happiness doesn't grow. Of course, you need basic needs to thrive. But how do we measure this idea economically of bringing in those things you just mentioned there about kindness in relationships and... Well, you can measure those things. I mean, there are measures. There are measures, you know, very good measures of, of prevalence of loneliness in society, for example, to take the, the wrong side of things. And there are good measures of the strength of social bonds and social capital, for example. So David Putnam, American sociologist, did quite a lot of work 20 years or so ago on, on social capital and this book called Bowling Alone, which is which oh, is a God. kind of metaphor for, you know, everybody just going out and doing their own thing as an individual and actually undermining social capital in the process of doing that. And so, there, you know, there are very good ways of measuring. But I think there's another point to make that it's not all about measurement. It's also about understanding. And, you know, if we take that idea of achieving those let's say you know that satisfaction of, of learning a new skill whether that's a musical skill or something physical or something intellectual development of yourself in some way and the satisfactions that come with that we can certainly measure the extent to which those satisfactions exist we can measure for example you know how people report those experiences and whether people who are likely to report those experiences also have higher or lower well-being whether they have higher sense of of meaning and fulfillment in life, and they do. And all of that is measurable. But what's more important is to understand the, the foundations for it, the antecedents for it, what is going to allow us to get to that society and what's stopping us getting towards that society. And one of the most fascinating things is that what stops us getting towards that society is materialism itself. More materialistic individuals have less propensity to achieve these states of psychological flow materialism somehow standing in the way of the progress that we want to make which is not a progress which you know is dependent on trashing the planet it's not a progress which is unequal and only available to some people it's a progress which could be entirely democratized that sense of of a better world for everyone is being hindered by the materialism that sits inside consumerism we're back to balance as well, because when you were speaking there, I was thinking about perhaps one of the things that we might measure is how well nature's doing. Yeah, I mean, that is a critical part of understanding where are the kind of limits to what we can really achieve in human terms, in terms of human progress without trashing the world around us. And as soon as we actually really trash the world around us, we undermine our own potential to flourish as well. We should not be in any doubt about that, really. You know, what the only way that we've got away with that it really is exporting all that damage to places where we are not. <laughs> and that's not a recipe for real prosperity in any sense. All right. I know we're running out of time. You can't pay the rent on, I wish I'd actually written down properly without this scribble what you exactly said, but something like uh, the satisfaction of learning a new skill. So how will we continue to pay for things? What do you think the world of work will look like or could look like in a successful post-growth economy? I wanted to ask you about single universal basic income as well. Well, that's, I mean, it's, they go together in a sense, those, because the organisation of money and the organisation of work are a part of 
a part of society and they're a part of what's going wrong in society. And, and on the work thing, you know, again, it was a lesson from the pandemic who are the people we needed most and relied upon most during the pandemic, the frontline workers. They were the people that had been left behind by capitalism for decades and their incomes were low and, and their livelihoods were insecure and the conditions they faced at work were really poor. And now, guess what? They're also at the front line of the pandemic. So they really, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who are really vital in the world of work that we have neglected in capitalism and so and when you ask why that happened it's because we made very very specific choices about what we valued in society and this the kind of idea that we valued you know material productivity in society and we even valued efficiency in society and that efficiency is relatively easy to pursue when you can make new stuff and sell it as fast as possible and hope it falls apart soon so you can sell even more of it tomorrow that looks like a good thing in productivity, but it's actually completely meaningless when your life is at stake and you need someone to care for you. And that the work of care in that context is something that we have not put at the heart of our economy, that we've not valued the people who deliver it for us. And instead, we've given all the rewards to people who are producing crap as fast as possible and sometimes even just producing dreams, you know, and, and accumulating enormous financial wealth from it. So it, to ask the question, how do we pay for it? You have to go back a step and ask the question, what does payment for things mean? And what it means is that society makes these decisions and creates institutions which allocate wealth according to certain kinds of criteria. And then the people that achieve those criteria become extraordinarily wealthy and extraordinarily powerful. And that power and that wealth is not really consistent with the values of a humane society. And so that question, and we probably don't have time to answer it fully, but that question of, you know, how do we pay for it is really a question of how do we allocate value? To whom do we allocate value? And how do we create mm. the institutions that protect the people that we do and should value most in society? So much to think about there, but it also just strikes me that it's common sense. Anyone with any empathy for their fellow beings and also including nature in that sentence would see that I mean often I feel like on this podcast we're talking to people who agree with us which I'd like to hope that we can reach out to some who don't but anyway it's madness to have the ever-widening gap between rich and poor and to be so disconnected etc etc what you say is a beautiful vision and I think we can we've got lots to think about there but let me just finish on that idea of just a question do you think a single universal basic income might be one of the tools that we could use to get us there I do. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things that one of the people who wrote about it, first of all, was a guy called Andre Gortz. And um, way back, you know, not in this millennium, even in the mid-1960s. And, you know, he was one of those visionary people. He was also one of the founding fathers of the idea of degrowth. Okay. And and he he saw the idea of a universal basic income as a kind of disruptive policy. It looks fairly innocuous when you think about it yeah let's give everybody some money and that would just a basic amount of money that they can meet their immediate needs and that will equalize society and it will create opportunities for voluntary work in society which you couldn't afford to do before if you had to go out and get a job or you didn't have time to do if you had to go out and get a job it would valorize all of those things that actually we 
that are meaningful, the work that's done in the home, the work that's done looking after kids, the work that's done looking after old people, volunteering in the community, all the things that actually provide for the social fabric which creates a better society would be possible under a basic income. But he saw it kind of as going almost because you've done something which transforms the way that we think about our society, that's disruptive of the existing economics and it gives a sense of a different kind of a future, a way out of consumer capitalism. Uh, we don't have time to ask all the questions that I'm sure people would love to ask about that. So I'm just going to ask you a silly one that I'm always wondering about. Who would collect the bins? Because who's going to do that? Who's going to do the job that they don't want to volunteer for because there's no financial incentive? You know, I kind of, when I think <laughs> about that, I have two kind of answers really. And one is that you pay people properly to do a really crap job. You know, you pay people because that is that is of value not to have a dirty society. And so to not pay people to do that is cheapskate, basically. You know, it's, it's not it's not the sort of behaviour you'd accept with your friends. There would be an economy of earning on top of it. Oh, yeah, of course you would. I think we still have an economy of earning on top of it. But the other thing that I would say, and it's probably not a very popular thing to say, it's a bit perverse, really, but it is something that to some extent I live by, is that I think we should all at some point in our lives do crappy jobs. Oh, yeah. You know, I absolutely think that there's there's something that you learn about yourself from what people think of as crappy jobs. And even it was something interestingly that I did when I was writing the book, because it's very, very grounding to find really crappy jobs to do. Maybe this is the sense in which the book is all bullshit. You know, it's about <laughs> it's about it's about sometimes you need to get down dirty and you need your hands dirty and your limbs aching because that is actually what it means to be human and to kind of think that you can be human by sitting in front of a computer writing a wonderful book that lots of people are going to read with splendid ideas about tomorrow that is not the entirety of what life is about gotta get down and do it finding myself dirty jobs which were just about keeping the garden clean or the house you know in order or the rubbish in the right place or the recycling in the right place that is actually i think something that we don't aspire to but we should understand as being part of our visceral nature as human beings and as Hannah Arendt says you know one of the good things about those kinds of tasks is that it's bliss when they stop <laughs> all right we ran out of time but I want to end where we sort of began just on hope it's more than 10 years ago now that you did that TED talk where you talked about growth and economic alternatives and hope how hopeful are you today that we can turn this around I mean, it's different on different days. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that happened for me when I was, I used to, after Prosperity Without Growth, I used to say, well, you know, I'm pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, which is a <laughs> quote from Gramsci. You know, you, you choose hope, if you like. But actually, in the final chapter of Post Growth, where I'm talking about Emily Dickinson and her poetry, and I started with this little piece of poetry that she talks about hope. She hopes to sing that uh, flutters in the human soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And the more I thought about what she was saying there, what she was kind of saying is that we don't have to worry too much about being hopeful because hope is something that happens to us. It chooses us. We don't choose hope. It chooses us. And that, to me, frees you from worrying too much about hope. And it allows you to focus, actually, on what matters. And I think... You know, the, the opposite to despair isn't hope, it's action. And the choice to act is always possible. 
That's a beautiful ending. I shan't end on what I just looked up because I was like, hmm, lovely poetry, but I also know that he finds hope in Greta. I'll just try and remember her quote, which was, you can shove your climate crisis up your up ass. Up your ass, absolutely, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Tim Jackson, thank you very much for your generosity. This has been very nice indeed. I appreciate it a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis Patreon community, and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles, and special access. Because I love you Because I love you